the um, first lesson you learn as a preacher is that uh, you need the Lord's help. So let's bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you speak to us in many different ways. Uh, you speak to us through the pens of men in these beautiful hymns that we've sung. Um, you speak to us through um, images and signs like these candles that we've lit. And you speak to us through your word. And Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today. Uh, please confront us with the truth as found in Isaiah. And please um, encourage our hearts, convict our hearts, speak to us, and give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. Lord, we confess that if you do not abide with us this morning, and if you do not speak to us through your spirit, by your word, then these words that I say are empty and powerless. And so we pray, we beg you that you would come and you would speak to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Advent begins in the dark. That's a saying that a theologian Fleming Rutledge likes to say a lot in her book, Advent. Advent begins in the dark. And one of the things that she's trying to emphasize is how that contrasts with what we're told by our culture about well, what they call the holiday season. Okay, so we're in the holiday season, which means it's all about lights and joy and colors and gifts and good food and gatherings and parties and presents. And we're told that this is the most joyous time of the year. We're asked to basically forget all of our problems. Ignore them. Act like they don't exist. There are no tears. There are no sad faces for Christmas time. It's all light, bright joy. But if you dig down a little bit deeper, you realize how hollow that really is. I mean, you can look at the statistics. Christmas time is the loneliest time of the year for a lot of people. Um, I even have my own, my students, okay, these are high schoolers in prayer requests saying it's about to be Christmas time, which means family's coming around, and for a lot of us, that's not good news. We need prayer. Uh, and I'm thinking, if that's already a reality when you're 17, you know, wait until you get a little bit older. I mean, for a lot of people, Christmas, the reality of it, and this whole season leading up to Christmas, is one that doesn't quite match the uh, messages that our culture is sending us. And I think that that can cause a lot of cognitive dissonance that can really seem to uh, be difficult for us to understand. And so we can kind of go through this Christmas season just kind of confused. And we go from thing to thing to thing, and it's busy enough that we don't really have that much time to reflect anyway. But we have kind of a low-level, unsettled feeling most of the time. Um, and that's not the way that God has invited us to process this time of year. Uh, that's the, what our culture wants us to do, and that's, this, this is a culture of confusion and of lies. What God has invited us to do in Advent is to actually reflect on the reality of life. As Seth pointed out, this time between the Advents, the reality of it. Advent is very real and realistic. Um, and what Advent tells us is that in some ways, we're living in the dark. It's inviting us to reflect back to a time when Israel was in exile. Okay, if you're familiar with the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, um, that's all about the exile 
And they're longing for God to come visit them and remove them from exile. They're in darkness. And this Advent season that we Christians celebrate invites us to participate in that. Because we too are exiles. Peter tells us, uh, if you look at the book of 1 Peter, he says that we're elect exiles. We're still some way in the dark. And still in some way we are sojourners. We are trapped under the burden of this weary world. You can see that if you look at yourself. We see sin, as Trent reminded us. We, we see sin in our own hearts. We feel burdened by the curse of this world, whether it's health problems, whether it's conflict between family members. We can look outward at our own culture and see that things are a wreck. You know, every day, I don't know why I do it, but I go to Google and I click news. And I look and see what disastrous thing is happening today in the world of American politics or geopolitics or what's, uh, what's happening to persecuted Christians around the world or what new shooting happened this week. In a lot of ways, Advent invites us to slow down and to reflect on the fact that in many ways we're still in the dark. But that doesn't mean that Advent is a time of despair. Actually, Advent is a time of deep hope. But the thing is, hope, hope is not the same thing as blind confidence. And it's not the same thing as ignoring all of your problems and singing happy songs. We're not whistling in the dark, right? You whistle in the dark when you're deeply afraid, but you don't want to hear all the bad sounds around you, so you whistle so you can at least hear yourself. No, we're, Advent isn't a time to whistle in the dark and try to ignore your problems. Advent is a time of hope, which means the image I like to give is actually not unique to me. It's candles in the dark. Small bits of light in the midst of the darkness. But that light is going to grow. And that's the hope. Hope is something that is very realistic. But it's something that invites us to look forward to something better yet to come. So every week, we light more candles. The idea is that the light grows and grows and grows. This is what Advent's about, inviting us to start to look in hope on those candles in the dark. That's what I want us to reflect on a little bit as we read this very interesting passage from Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah 11. We already heard it once while we were lighting the Advent candles. It's serendipitous. It's almost like somebody planned that. This is what Isaiah says to the nation of Israel right before the Lord judges them and sends them into exile. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins." 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The word of God for the people of God. Okay, so this really should be like a three or four part sermon. But don't worry, we're not going to fit it all into one week. It's just going to be a one part sermon where we can't get to everything. And that's okay. We have many more years of reflecting on the same Bible passage. So I saw some scared faces really quick. Uh, but this is to say that this is very difficult to preach a passage of prophecy. And you've probably realized it's probably even difficult to read prophecy. Uh, in our young adult small group, we've been bandying about different ideas for our new study. And several people have thrown out the idea of the minor prophets because we don't spend that much time reading them or discussing them. And I think that goes for the prophets as a whole, even someone like Isaiah. Prophecy's tough to understand. And one of the reasons why it's tough to understand is because we need all this historical context. Then another reason why it's tough to understand is that how do we know when it's been fulfilled? Has it already been fulfilled? Was it fulfilled at Jesus' first coming? Is it going to be fulfilled later? Was this fulfilled even before Jesus came? Who does this apply to? Is this talking about the Jews? Is this talking about Christians? Is it talking about pagans? Are we supposed to decipher this and figure out the exact day and time Jesus is coming back or the rapture is going to happen or the rapture is probably not going to happen anytime soon or ever. But that's a conversation for another day. But prophecy can be tough. And there are all these arguments about what it means. And so a lot of times we can kind of decide just to not read it. Or when you're trying to preach it, it can be tough because how in-depth do you go on some of these things in order for us to understand what God's getting at here? Well, we're going to try, and we're going to fail, and that's okay because this is Advent. This is a time where we recognize failure. So, Okay, let's think about this. In the first verse, it says, There shall come forth a rod or a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. Okay, that's kind of an interesting image. Okay, some sort of new growth out of a stump, a stump of Jesse. Of course, that leads us to a few questions. Who's Jesse, and why is he called a stump? <clears throat> um, and if you have any sort of, you know, knowledge about the Old Testament, maybe if you've been here and listened to Lee's sermons in 1 Samuel, you'll remember, oh yeah, Jesse, he had a son. He was kind of important. Son's name was David, David right. Uh, and David ended up becoming king of Israel. So it's pretty clear that God's saying that there's going to be some new growth out of the lineage of David and Jesse, perhaps a new king. But of course, a prophecy about a new king coming doesn't mean much for us unless we understand why do they need a new king? What was wrong about the old kings? 
And why in the world is Jesse a stump? Why isn't he a tree? Well, uh, the context here is pretty clear. Israel and Judah are facing judgment from God because repeatedly, time and time again, their kings have been rebellious against God in many ways, and they've led the people astray. As the king goes, so goes the people. And at some point, God said, I will cut you down. I will remove your kings. They are an abomination in my sight. Okay, that's the context here. But we have to go a little bit deeper because we need to understand what was the purpose of a king to begin with. To understand this, we have to understand what was the purpose of Israel to begin with. So now we're going pretty far back. So to put it in a nutshell, the purpose of Israel was to redeem the world. After the fall of man, this world was cursed, right? Satan, sin, and death, those became the new kings. Those became the new rulers. Those became the highest powers that had say over everyone else. Enslaved to sin. Everyone. Doomed to die. Everyone. Under the bondage of Satan and the kingdom of darkness. Everyone. But God made a promise. A promise begun in Genesis 3.15, then carried out a little bit further with Noah, and then with Abraham, and then with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. This promise says that he was going to carve out a nation, a kingdom for himself, and that kingdom would start to fight back against the powers of darkness. That kingdom was going to be ruled by Yahweh. But he was going to rule that kingdom through human rulers. Okay, first we get Moses. Then we get the judges. Finally, we get kings. And through those human rulers, Yahweh was going to rule his people. And his people were going to obey him. And they were going to worship him. And they were going to establish justice on the earth. And they were going to start to fight back. And his kingdom would start to expand. And then the rest of the world was going to look on Israel and go, we're in darkness, but they seem to be in the light. Something right is happening. We want a part of that. And the nations were supposed to come to Israel. And were supposed to join Israel. And God's kingdom was supposed to flourish over the earth. Well, what Israel didn't realize with that vision was that it was going to be a lot more complicated. Because the fact is, Israel wasn't really up for the task. And they never were up for the task. Because they're sinful. They're under the domain of darkness like everybody else. And their kings, who were supposed to represent Yahweh, were sinful too. Even the best of them, David, utterly, despicably sinful. And he was the best. And it went downhill from there. And the kingdom of God became more and more corrupt to the point where in the prophets, God says, you're worse than the nations around you. You do things even they find despicable. You need a new king. You need a new king. This is what the Isaiah passage that we're looking at is talking about. He's gotten rid of the old kings. And Israel stuck in darkness. 
But God doesn't leave him there. Because that's not how God does things. There is always a light shining in the darkness. God always gets his way. Now, his way often takes a lot longer than we'd like, and it's a lot more complicated than we'd like, and it's pretty messy, but he always gets his way. And that's what he's saying here. There shall come forth a king who's going to do what all the other kings of Israel failed to do. Now, that's good news if you're Israel, because you know that you deserve to be completely cut off. You know that there shouldn't even be a stump. That stump should be uprooted. All of the roots should be thrown into the trash. But what God says is, no, I'm going to preserve that stump. And then out of that shall grow forth a true king. And from that true king, the kingdom of God will start to spread. Well, let's look at what this true king was supposed to do. Verse 2. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Okay, this is interesting for a number of reasons. This king obviously has the presence of God's spirit. It's mentioned quite a few times. Spirit of the Lord, spirit of wisdom, spirit of counsel, spirit of knowledge. This is getting at two, two unique ideas. The first is that in Israel's time, the king was especially anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see this in uh, 1 Samuel when Saul becomes king. He uh, receives the Holy Spirit. He even prophesies by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then later, the Holy Spirit is taken from him because of his wickedness. Uh, David, when he sins with Bathsheba, if you read Psalm 51, he says, take not your spirit from me. Don't take away your spirit of wisdom and understanding from me. It was through the spirit of God that the kings were able to rule God's nation. So this king is going to have the spirit of Yahweh. But notice, this spirit is defined in seven different ways. The spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. Now that's interesting. Seven different, seven different um, elements, characteristics, manifestations of this spirit who's going to be on the king. And this should make us think about a couple things. One, it should make us think about the temple. The temple. The temple, and before the temple, the tabernacle, that was the place where God's Spirit uniquely dwelt among the people. And that was represented by a candle. Actually, seven candles. You might know of it as the menorah. Okay, this is one candle in the middle with... Three different, excuse me, three different offshoots of it, making seven candles, seven lights, and that was supposed to represent the perfection of God's spirit. Seven is a perfect number. You see this also repeated in Revelation, the seven spirits of God in the dwelling place 
of God in God's temple in heaven. Uh, it doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits, but it's the, it's the number of perfection. It's the, the, um, the perfect and effectual presence of the Holy Spirit in God's temple. Seven lights. And what we've learned is that the presence of God with the king and the presence of God in his temple always go together. And there's this terrifying moment in Ezekiel near the end of Judah before Judah goes into exile. The last king of Judah has been cut off and they see the Spirit of God come up out of the temple and leave. Spirit is gone. The presence of God is gone. The presence of God with his king, the presence of God with the temple is gone. The lights have gone out. And all that's left is darkness. The great judgment of God. God is nowhere to be found. So when Isaiah here prophesies that a king will come who will have the sevenfold spirit, that spirit of perfection, he's saying, I will come to dwell again with my people. I will rule through my king and I will dwell with my people, Israel. Emmanuel means what? God with us. This is what Isaiah is getting at here. Now that's, that's good news. So let's look at what else this king will do. It says in verse 3, He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes or reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and reprove the equi with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. He's going to be the type of king that Israel never had. Let's go through this list and see the type of king that Israel did have. Whereas this king will judge not after the sight of his eyes, nor reprove after the hearing of his ears. All the kings of Israel did. What this, this is getting at several different things. One of the things it's getting at is that these were foolish kings. Somebody came and told them something, and they believed it. It's not a smart king. They saw something, and they immediately pursued it. It's not a smart king. But I think beyond that, what do these kings look at? I think often they've been looking at bribes. They've been looking at wealth. They've been looking at power. This is the uh, lust of the eyes. We see this time and time again in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. If you want um, a time of uh, reading about the darkness this afternoon. Just read all of those books this afternoon to see. I know you probably won't, but neither will I. But if you wanted to, you would see time and time again the types of kings that Israel had. They're the ones who pursued the flashy things that came before their eyes. Power, wealth, prestige. People came to them with bribes. They took it. They were not after justice. Any 
anything that someone whispered in their ear for their benefit, they would listen to it and they would accept it. But this king does not judge after the sight of his eyes. This king does not reprove after the hearing of his ears, but this king is just. With righteousness, he shall judge the poor. And he will reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. You see, one of the things that the prophets continually condemn Israel and the kings for is how they treated the needy. How did they treat the widows? How did they treat the poor? How did they treat the people who could not take care of themselves? One of the main jobs of leadership was to take care of those who could not take care of themselves. But instead, these leaders abused them, took advantage of them. We see even these sorts of people in Jesus' own day, right? Uh, we see John the Baptist calling out the same types of people. We see Jesus calling out the same types of people. You devour widows' houses. You don't care for the poor. You use your power to exploit. That's not the way the kingdom of God works. That's the way the kingdom of darkness works. But this king... He will come, and he will be just. This king will bring justice and equity for the people. But this king isn't going to bring a type of peace that's soft. Um, as the same theologian likes to say, Advent isn't for sissies. It's not for sissies. There's judgment that comes along with this king. Okay, we heard about the judgment from John the Baptist. We hear about this judgment here. This king will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. The coming of this king is good news if you're on the king's side. If you're not on the king's side, this is the worst news imaginable. The wicked love the dark, and when the light comes in, the darkness gets really uncomfortable. We see that in John 1. The light pierces the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the light coming in. And those who dwell in darkness, they're afraid. Now notice what he's using to smite the wicked. Is he using a sword? Is he using a spear? or bow and arrow, or an axe. No. He's using the rod of his mouth and the power of his lips. He's using his word. Now think about that. <clears throat> the word used to pierce the darkness. The word used to bring light into dark places. Where have we seen that? before. Genesis, John, Revelation, all true. We see that all the way back in Genesis 1. Okay, this is one of the main things that, that the writer of Genesis 1 is trying to do with the way that he sets up, this is Moses wrote Genesis 1, the way that Moses set up Genesis 1 is to help us get some categories we're going to need for the story of redemption. And one of the big categories we're going to need is let there be light. 
God speaks that into the darkness and chaos of the, the universe before it was formed. Light pierces the darkness. And that's going to become one of the main themes throughout Scripture. Satan's kingdom is called the kingdom of darkness. Christ, the Word, John 1, is light. That light, the new king, promised here in Isaiah 11, is going to come, he's going to pierce the darkness, he's going to slay the wicked. And we see that revisited again in Revelation, but we'll get, that, get to that in a little bit. So this is what the king is going to do. He's going to use his word, and he's going to slay the wicked. He's going to pierce the darkness. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Now we get an abrupt shift here. We see that this king is going to come, and he's going to do a lot of things, and now we're going to see the effect that his reign is going to have on the earth over time. What's it going to look like once this king is king? Well, we're told the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat the straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play in the hole of the asp, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Okay, this is where we get into the interesting thing about prophecy is that often prophecy doesn't simply have one fulfillment. So if you've been kind of thinking, well, when did this get fulfilled? Is this about, I mean, surely it's about Jesus, but is this about when Jesus came 2,000 years ago as a babe in a manger? Is this about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back? We look around and... Um, I haven't seen any wolves dwelling with lambs anytime recently. I've never actually seen a leopard, but I bet if I did, he wouldn't be lying down with a goat. I think a good analogy for how to understand prophecy uh, is like a mountain range. Okay, so if you're far back and you're looking at a mountain range... It's hard to tell the perspective. Are all of these mountains side by side in one kind of row, or are they splayed out, different rows, different distances? It's kind of hard to tell. Right? But the closer you get, the more you see that, oh, this mountain range, which looked kind of uniform, actually has many layers to it. This is kind of what prophecy is. Almost all the prophecies in Scripture have multiple fulfillments. What we see here is a vision of what God will begin to do in Christ's first coming, what he'll continue to do in this time that we have on earth, the time between the advents, and what he will finally do in Christ's second coming. Multiple fulfillments that continue to grow as time goes on. Now, when I read this, I don't immediately think about 
actual literal carnivores dwelling with herbivores. Now that's there. But if you think about the context of this passage, we're talking about wicked rulers, right? Wicked rulers who have been devouring people, who have been killing people, who have been eating up people's property. We see all throughout the prophets, and even in the Gospels, people called wolves, snakes, brood of vipers, roaring lions seeking someone to devour. I think, firstly, what this is saying is, when this king comes, he is going to judge the wicked such that all of those wicked people you are so afraid of, all of those wicked people who had so much power and nobody could stop them, they are going to be meek and quiet, and they're going to be next to all of those vulnerable people, and they won't be able to touch them because the king is watching. The new king, he's going to put fear into the hearts of these wicked rulers. This is Psalm 2. All the rulers of this earth, they think they have all of this power, but God in heaven laughs. Because he's going to come, and you need to kiss the feet of the son, lest he be angry. That's the vision we're getting here. Now, secondarily, we will get this literally in the new heavens and the new earth. Spoiler alert, there will be animals. There will be pets in the new heavens and the new earth. And we won't get violence. We won't get the shedding of blood. The lion will lay down with the lamb. That will happen. So they're both true, multiple fulfillments. Another thing that's difficult about prophecy is understanding how these multiple fulfillments kind of play out. <clears throat> um, if you think about it, when Christ came 2,000 years ago, this little babe, this prophecy was fulfilled. The king was born. Emmanuel, God with us, was with us. Satan was defeated. Or particularly as Jesus' earthly ministry went along. And at the cross, we talk about how Satan was defeated. Death has no sting anymore. Sin has been conquered. But then we look around. Satan still seems to be at work. Sin still seems to be present. Death is an imminent reality. How do these things fit together? How can this prophecy already in some sense, be true. Um, there are two analogies that kind of help me think about this. One is a biblical analogy, which is probably the better one. Um, but we'll start with the non-biblical analogy. So in World War II, you could say that there were multiple times when the war was effectively over. Okay? The first uh, was D-Day. After the Allies landed on the beach of Normandy and actually were able to establish a position in France, that marked the beginning of the end for 
the axis in Europe. But it took quite a long time for that end to actually come. It was, in a sense, over. We knew, unless something miraculous happened, we would win. But there was still a lot of work to be done to make that happen. Then, even after um, the Nazis surrendered, Victory in Europe Day, how do you think that news was taken by the American soldiers in the Pacific Theater in Japan? Didn't really mean a whole lot. They still had to keep fighting. When they got the news that Hitler had surrendered, they were in the middle of several vicious battles with the Japanese. And it would take three more months of horrible fighting and death before the Japanese surrendered. For them, the news that the uh, Nazis had surrendered, they kind of met with a shrug. But when they got news that new tanks had been deployed to help them in their battle, that's what got them excited that day. Because the battle was still there to be fought. Now, the war, they knew, was going to be over. But it was going to take a lot longer to finally work it out. When Jesus came, this marked the beginning of the end for the kingdom of darkness. The candles had been lit. The light was shining. But it was going to take a long time, and it still does take a long time, for that light to grow and fully conquer the darkness. We see that in David's ministry. Okay, we've been looking at David, 1 Samuel. He gets anointed king of Israel. He's king. Yet, what did he do as king for quite a while? He ran away from Saul, who claimed to be king. Now, Saul's kingdom was over, but it wasn't over. Jesus, or not Jesus, David was king, but he wasn't fully king yet. Then after Saul gets killed, which we're getting into that in 2 Samuel, spoiler alert, David gets crowned king in Hebron, but he doesn't get crowned king in Jerusalem to be king over all of Israel for seven years after he gets crowned king in Judah. It took seven more years for him to conquer another puppet king, Ishbosheth in order to actually be king over all of Israel. A several-stage process. He was already king when he got anointed by Samuel back when he was a boy. But it took a long time for that kingdom to fully be realized and he to have full dominion over Israel. This is what we get with prophecy. This is what we get with the kingdom of God. Jesus came. Jesus died. Jesus established his kingdom and it's effectively over for the power of darkness. But it's taken 2,000 years, and it's going to take even longer for that, that power of darkness to finally be snuffed out completely. We're awaiting the return of the king, where what's been started will be finished. So this is our hope. It's a confidence that we know it will be finished, but it's not some sort of 
blindness that says that everything's fine. It's all good. There's nothing left to be done. No, there's still darkness, but we see the candles in the dark. And that light will continue to get brighter and brighter and brighter. So what does this mean for us? I think this is what it means for us. One, it means that we need to be encouraged, that we need to have hope. We have a king, a much better king than David or Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, any of the kings of Israel and Judah. We've got the king that came out of the stump of Jesse. We've got the king who works by the power of his sevenfold spirit. We've got the king of righteousness, justice, understanding, and wisdom, and he's ruling and he's reigning. And all that darkness which is real in our life, he is slowly but surely putting out and defeating. And he will one day come back and finish the job. Which is why Advent begins in the dark, but it doesn't end in the dark. Advent ends with Christmas, right? Our celebration, our celebration of Christ's birth. The king came as a little babe. But our celebration that because that happened, we know he's coming again. Because what God starts, he always finishes. Here's the thing. He hasn't left us to be passive, just waiting. But this is an active waiting. If you think about it, we talked about how the presence of the king linked with the temple. God dwelt and worked through his king, and he dwelt in his temple, right? Those go together presence of God through his spirit by his king by his temple in Israel if Christ is now the king where's his temple we are the temple we are the presence of God in this world we're the light of the world and we've got a job to do you see, God's at work right now. He's spreading his kingdom. He's advancing against the powers of darkness. And we're called to be the instrument that he uses to accomplish that. We are the light of the world. So don't hide. Don't cower. Work. Act. Be a part of what God is doing in the world. And here's the thing. It's not as if God needs our help. The king's coming no matter what. But... Do you want to be on the king's side? Do you want to be doing the king's work? Do you want to join in that victorious life? Or do you want to sit on the sidelines? Or even worse, are you even a part of his kingdom? Or are you one of the people that needs to be afraid of the fact that Jesus is coming back? Are you one of the ones who he will smite with the rod of his mouth? 
Revelation talks to us about this. When Jesus comes back, his word is going to be like a sword coming out of his mouth, and he will slay his enemies. You don't want to be one of his enemies. But if you're in his family, if you've been redeemed by his blood that he shed at his first coming, then hasten the day of the Lord by being at work, spreading the light in the darkness. Now, how do we do that? I think we do that in three ways. Real fast. If you look at the categories that this king um, kind of his work fits into, I think there are three categories. The first is the word, which we've talked about. The second is justice, which we've seen. Justice for the poor, justice for the needy, justice for the weak. And then the third is peace. He makes peace, of course, through war. But he's the prince of peace. Word, justice, peace. Those are our three commissions as God's people here on earth acting out and working out the plan of the king. His word. Are we evangelizing? Are we speaking the truth? Are we using God's word to spread his kingdom? How do we use our words? Many of us are going to join our families for Christmas, and many people in our families are not Christians. A unique opportunity to do the work of the king this Christmas time through the word. Justice. Now, this is a tricky one because a lot of people think that justice is the only thing that the church is about. Social justice, right? Make the bad things better. Well, no, that's not all that the church is about, but. That is what God is about. One of the things the king does is to work justice in this unjust world. We can't, we can't lead it, leave it to our leaders to do that. Right? We can't leave it to our elected officials to take care of the poor and the needy. We can't leave it to businesses. We can't even leave it to a lot of nonprofit organizations. Every week you see another one of them being shown to be corrupt in various ways. It's the job of the church. It's our mission that God works through us to establish justice and equity here in Huntersville, here even in our own midst. This is the work of the king, fighting against the powers of darkness. And third is peace. Peace. This is peace that's not accomplished through political power. Okay, I, get, I get way too distracted with politics, partially because I'm an American history teacher, so it's fascinating. But it's also, I think, because I look to our leaders to uh, do the things that I know they really can't do because they're only things that God can do, and he likes to do them through his church. And the more that we get wrapped up in politics... And the more that we start to think that a political party is our enemy or politicians are our enemies, the more distracted we are by the real enemy, Satan and sin. How do we establish peace on earth? By fighting, but not by fighting politicians, not by fighting 
for power and influence, not by fighting culture wars. No, we fight by putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We fight by fighting the sin in our own hearts. We fight by fighting the work of Satan in our lives and the lives of this community. That's how we fight. That's how we make peace. That's the type of fighting that this king is all about. So the word justice and peace, that is how the king right now through us is expanding his kingdom, is spreading out his light in the darkness. And we do that. We do that with hope. We do that without getting discouraged because we know he's coming back and he's going to finish the job. And we'll fail. We won't do it perfectly. But he will forgive us because that's something that this king does. And he will bring us rest in that last day. And we're told in Revelation that when he comes back, the light will fill the darkness, and there will be no sun, and there will be no night, for Christ will be our light, and God himself will dwell with us. That's our Advent hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful reality, and we pray that you would give us Advent hope, and we pray that you would fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and that we, you would be actively at work, spreading your kingdom as we await the great and glorious day of the Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.